Xtox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing AI used to study mental health side effects and non-drug incontinence therapy. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Vera Kovacevic, Managing Editor at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sarah Hand and Sydney Perlmutter. Thanks for coming today. So let's start off today's episode with a story about a TV ad for a medical device that ended up being very popular. So there's a company called Exonix, and it's been a little over a year since they released their Find Real Relief TV ad campaign. And this ad campaign was for overactive bladder and incontinence issues. And recently, the company reported their annual performance numbers. And so their revenue from last year was over $273 million. Now, this was actually very substantial for them because it was an increase of 52% compared to 2021's. So the company's CEO, Raymond Cohen, said in a recent news release that um, they are continuing to make great progress on several key initiatives, including their direct-to-consumer advertising campaign. And so the direct-to-consumer TV commercials were about their axonics therapy, and they think that this has helped them establish their reputation in the non-drug incontinence therapy space. So if you're wondering, um, around 87 million adults in the U.S. and Europe have overactive bladder, and it's estimated that an additional 40 million adults have fecal incontinence. And so Exonix says that their therapy can really help treat these conditions. Um, so let's talk about what is Exonix therapy and what were the TV commercials about. So Exonix, um, it's a global medical device company. It's based in Southern California, and it has these innovative sacral neuromodulation systems. And they were approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of overactive bladder and bowel dysfunction. So their neurostimulation systems are implantable and they're designed to help patients suffering from urinary retention, overactive bladder, and chronic fecal incontinence. And so axonic therapy works by applying electrical stimulation to the sacral nerves. And this activates or inhibits the effector organs that are innervated by these nerves. So this includes the bladder, urinary and anal sphincters, pelvic floor and rectosigmoid colon. And so Exonix says that their therapy is easy to use, that it's safe and clinically effective. And they showed that with clinical trials. And overall, their therapy helps patients restore their urinary and bowel control. And so in the TV commercials that aired last year, um, there was two of them that were really popular, and they featured real-life patients who were talking about Exonix therapy. So in the first commercial that was launched in April of last year, 
it was titled Find Relief, Jill. And so this commercial featured Jill, who was um, talking about all the benefits of the technology, and she says it helped overcome her overactive bladder issues and get her life back. And so there was two versions of the TV ad. One was 30 seconds and the other one was 60 seconds. And just to get you a feel for like how impactful these TV ads were, on YouTube, the 30-second TV ad with Jill got over 1.7 million views. And the 60-second version of it had around 350,000 views. So this is pretty substantial for uh, a non-drug therapy. And so with another month, Axonics released another TV spot, and this featured a real-life patient called Melissa. And so Melissa was sharing her positive experience with Axonics therapy, and she said it really helped her manage her urinary and bowel control problems. And the ads with Melissa scored over 400,000 views on YouTube. So definitely this campaign really helped Exonics, and they do attribute their direct-to-consumer advertising campaigns as one of the factors that helped their, an their annual revenue increase by over 50%. And so to talk a little bit more about these FDA-approved axonics therapies, so there is basically two of them um, that are very new. So the first one is the axonics R20. And so this version received FDA approval in January of this year. And so axonics says that this is an easy-to-use system. It's equipped with a rechargeable battery that can last for at least 20 years. So the benefit of this is that it offers long-lasting therapy to patients. And it has a very small volume for an implantable device. It's only 5 cubic centimeters. And it does require recharging every 6 to 10 months for one hour. And this is, though, less than previous generation devices, which require monthly recharging. And the other... Um, version of their implantable neurostimulator is called the Exonix F15. Now, this is a truly recharge-free system. And, you know, because it is a recharge-free system, it does have a slightly bigger volume. It's 10 cubic centimeters. But Exonix says this is still 20% smaller than other non-rechargeable devices of a similar kind on the market. And so the Exonix F15 has a 10 to 20-year battery life. And because it's recharge-free, um, it eliminates the need for any element of the system to be recharged. And so we did say that the axonic systems are implanted into the body. So they are implanted um, with the goal to provide gentle stimulation to the nerves that control the bladder and bowel. But, you know, axonics does say like this... Um, medical device is not always going to be suitable for everyone. So in order to find a suitable candidate, a doctor first has to um, do like a test run to kind of see if the device is going to work well. Now, Exonix does say that when the device is implanted, this is a minimally invasive surgery and the device is placed just beneath the skin in the upper part of the patient's buttock. Now, Normally, only local anesthesia is used, and the whole procedure takes around 20 to 30 minutes, so it's not that long.
And if you're wondering how effective is axonics therapy, um, there were many clinical trials that evaluated its efficacy and safety. I'm just going to talk briefly about two of them. So one study recruited 129 patients. It was done across centers in the U.S. and Western Europe, and they were evaluating the safety and efficacy efficacy of axonics therapy for urinary dysfunction. And results at two years post-implantation of the device showed that 93% of implanted patients had a 50% or greater reduction in urge urinary incontinence symptoms. And 82% of treatment responders had a 75% or greater reduction in urgency leaks. And the patients in this study, um, many of them did report that they had a significant improvement in their quality of life, and over 90% of them were satisfied with the axonic system, and there was no serious device-related adverse events. In a second clinical study, 51 patients were recruited across seven centers in Europe, and the axonics therapy was evaluated in the treatment of overactive bladder and the results showed that 90% of participants continued to respond to the therapy at two years, and that 93% of them were satisfied with the therapy outcome. And once again, no serious device-related adverse events were reported. So it does seem that not only a majority, but a great majority of these patients were very satisfied and very happy with um, this non-drug therapy for for them. Now, although, um, you know, the axonic system is not suitable for everyone, it's not suitable for patients with mechanical urinary obstruction, and of course patients who did not respond well to the test simulation um, are not suitable candidates. Axonics does say that adverse events related to the implantation surgery of the device are possible, and there's also risk of other adverse events like allergic reactions to the device's material, changes in sensation, bowel or bladder function, um, there could be device malfunction, pain or irritation from the device, infection, and more. So obviously, as with um, any device or drug patients should discuss the potential risks and benefits with their healthcare provider. And now the good news is that for patients that are eligible for axonics therapy, um, axonics says that most insurances will cover this therapy. Now there are several other medical device companies that offer non-drug incontinence therapy. One of them is Metro Medtronic, and we know this is a huge American medical device company, and Medtronic does have a system called Interstim, and this Interstim system has also shown clinical effectiveness in improving bowel and bladder control. Now, similar to axonics therapy, the Interstim system by Medtronic restores the neural communication between the bladder and the brain and between the bowel and the brain. And a clinical study did show that um, Medtronic's interstim system is very has great efficacy for patients with overactive bladder, 
with 80% of participants reporting significant improvement in their conditions at just one year. So, um, just wanted to get your thoughts about what do you think about Exonics therapy and do you think that the reason why the company's revenue has increased so much was due to these TV commercials? Yeah, my my initial reaction to seeing these commercials was that this particular medical device feels like it's a very good fit for um, a direct-to-consumer ad because the condition that it's seeking to treat, you know, can be embarrassing. I'm not sure that uh, everyone is comfortable either talking about it, you know, with others or, or with their doctor. And so I think it's really impactful to see uh, testimony from real patients who have used this particular therapy um, to to find relief. So that was sort of my first reaction, um, and I I think that that probably had a, a big uh, role to play in in its increase in in profits in the last uh, few years. Um, I was also kind of thinking uh, I didn't know what types of therapy were available for incontinence, you know, whether drug or non-drug. I don't, I don't think I knew that there were even, um, you know, non-drug options. So I, I think it's good that uh, these ads seek to, to speak directly to people who may benefit and say, look, there, there is an option here. You know, you can find relief. That was kind of my, my initial reaction. Yeah, you're right. And the TV commercials for Exonics, they actually started off with the patients saying how they felt embarrassed to talk about it and mm -hmm. um, it was so uncomfortable for them and just their daily life was hindered. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely true. And the fact that it affects millions of people in the States and across Europe just shows that, you know, a direct-to-consumer ad in the States for this would really be impactful. Yeah, I think my other reaction was um, I know that uh, it's it's gaining in popularity in Canada at least, but I'm I'm not sure how prevalent it is in the U.S. But uh, a lot of people with these types of issues go to see um, special physiotherapists that that focus on helping patients strengthen their pelvic floor muscles um, to address incontinence issues. And so uh, I wonder what the path looks like, you know, for a patient that's talking to their doctor about having this issue, um, you know, what's their first course of action? Do they refer them to a physiotherapist? Do they try, you know, a drug option first and, and see if that works and then, and then go to the device? Because, uh, you know, even though you said it's, it's certainly effective for some patients, it's not without risks like anything. Um, so I wonder, you know, how, how common it is to have patients going to see uh, physio before they kind of test anything out. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I assume that maybe if it's not the first thing they try, perhaps it's it's something that they do along with the drugs or the medical device. Mm -hmm. um, but there are there are drugs to treat urinary continence, and I do think if if a drug is not suitable for a patient, maybe due to some side effects or something, then mm. they should definitely consider like a like a implantable medical device and luckily there's there's several options to choose from you know exonics therapy is not the only company that does this but yeah you know what to be honest like i haven't heard much about urinary continence but i can imagine it's a big like issue with just the day-to-day -day life 
You know, mm-hmm. like what if you're driving and you have to drive somewhere for an hour and then you're worried about, you know, having to use the bathroom or like a leakage. Mm-hmm. I can see the patients would be planning their whole day around this issue, which, like you said, would really be a hindrance. Um, I was interested as well when you said that uh, one of the devices is, you know, needs to be recharged, not on a super regular basis, but I think it was like every few months. How how do you do that? Is it Does it need to be removed or is there a way or do you know? So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, to recharge the Exonix device, um, patients don't actually have to undergo like any removal of the device, they can just place a charger on the skin over the implanted stimulator and the charger will charge the stimulator battery. And this typically Mm. takes from like one to four hours, depending on the depth of the stimulator and how the charger is placed over the stimulator. So yeah, it would, it would be a definitely an issue if, um, it couldn't be recharged over the skin like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. It reminds me of like just those, and I know we don't all have them. I don't have one, but if you've ever charged your phone with like a wireless mm. charger and you've just placed your phone on top of it, it's, I feel like they're kind of using probably the same technology there, mm-hmm. um, but just with, you know, a medical device. And I was also wondering, like, we, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, some, some ads for pharmaceuticals, but I feel like we don't often look at ads or maybe we don't see them as often for medical devices um is am i right in saying that like or do you think like a medical device like advertising uh is growing or um or am i wrong like have there been just as many would you say like ads for medical devices as there are for like actual like pharmaceuticals well you know speaking from someone who lives in canada like you know because canada doesn't allow this direct to consumer advertising so I can't say personally do I see more medical device or pharma ads but I definitely know like in the life science field in general there is a lot more focus on on pharma tv ads just that's what I've noticed on youtube and kind of in the stories about about like marketing that I'm reading but I can't really say like for certain yeah, that's a really good point. I think, I wonder if uh, a lot of medical devices don't lend themselves well to that sort of uh, advertising. So like maybe with, um, like I'm thinking more about implantable devices like, you know, specific pacemakers or like artificial hips and things. Maybe you want to market directly to uh, the physicians who are kind of like choosing what's going to be right for a patient as opposed to um, a DT, DTC ad where you're you're telling the patient, you know, talk to your doctor about this specific device. I think that, like I said before, I think this device really lends itself well to that type of advertising. And also maybe like diabetes care devices, because there's a lot of choice there. And there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of, I guess, heterogeneity in the types of people that have diabetes and their needs and their lifestyles and things. And so I think I've definitely seen some ads for, um, you know, glucose monitors and uh, and things like that. But that's a really good point. I, that also makes me think, um, I wonder what the regulations are like for DDC ads for medical devices compared to pharmaceuticals, because we know 
for drugs, they really need to present all of the risk information. I'm sure it's the same for medical devices, but uh, I wonder how the regulations differ there. Yeah, definitely. And even in the exonics therapy commercials, like there was a little disclaimer at the end. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely you're right, Sarah. Like I think most medical devices are in the cardiovascular or like diabetes space. And so in the cardiovascular space, like for example, a pacemaker or, you know, like a, like a stent or something like that's mm -hmm. there's no drug alternative. Like you kind of have to mm. get mm -hmm. the device implanted. And so I think you're right. They're probably market those things directly to healthcare providers. All right, so let's talk about our next story for today. And this one is about how two companies are joining forces with the FDA to use artificial intel intelligence to study the mental health side effects of a very commonly prescribed medication. So Cerner and Vizia, which is a company owned by Oracle, together with Jon Snow Labs, they are joining forces to support the U.S. FDA's drug safety initiative called the Sentinel Initiative. And so these two companies will use novel AI tools for drug safety and real-world real evidence studies. And so the goal is that these two companies together will help the FDA improve the understanding of the effects of medicines on large real-world populations. So they're collaborating together in a two-year project, and it will investigate the possible mental health side effects of a drug that's called Singular, or Montelukast. Now, the brand name of the drug is Singular, and the Montelukast is the name of the drug that's used while it is in clinical trials. Now, this drug is commonly prescribed to asthma patients. And so... How Cerner and Vizia and Jon Snow Labs, they will use AI to kind of investigate the mental health side effects of this drug in more detail because it's still currently unclear, like, to what extent this medication does cause mental health side effects. So they're going to go about doing this by using natural language processing technology and machine learning to extract critical information from clinical notes within electronic health records. And so by doing that with the help of AI, Cerner and Vizia and John Snow Labs believe that together they can explore the safety of Montelukast on large populations in a much more efficient way. Now, if you can imagine like manually analyzing patient symptoms and outcomes from clinician notes in large populations, this can be a very slow and labor-intensive process. So by enhancing computerized um, searches of digital patient data and clinical notes, um, this new AI technology can overcome the bottleneck of these traditional manual methods. And so the safety of a commonly prescribed drug like Montelukast, as well as its relationship to any um, known side effects, can be explored much more efficiently. And so... The global head of Cerner and Vizia, um, Mike Kelly, said that this is an incredible opportunity to work with these exceptional leaders to use Oracle's de-identified electronic health record data to help transform unstructured clinical notes into validated and usable data for physicians and researchers. And he thinks that 
This will help providers realize better recommendations and outcomes for their patients. So just to talk about a little bit more about these two companies before we talk about the project, Cerner and Vizia, this is a healthcare company and its headquarters are in New York. Cerner and Vizia um, really focuses on life sciences data analysis and research. And John Snow Labs is also a company that is based in the U.S. and they are um, a leading provider of software models and data consulting services that involve AI and they focus on healthcare and life sciences industries. Now, if you're wondering like, okay, so why did these two companies um, join forces with the FDA to help understand the side effects of Montelukast? It's because this drug is prescribed a lot and, you know, a a few years ago, there was a warning from the FDA about potential mental health side effects. So to talk more um, first about the drug, well, it is, you know, it was first FDA approved in 1998. So, you know, this drug was developed by Merck. And basically, Montelukas was approved for chronic treatment of asthma. Then, at the start of 2003, Montelukas was approved for the treatment of seasonal allergic rhinitis. So, you know, Montelukas has been used to treat asthma and allergies for over two decades now. It's an oral medication. It comes in tablets or granules, and it can be rapidly absorbed um, when it's taken through the mouth. It's extensively metabolized in the body, and it's basically used to treat um, asthma, I would say, the most. Now, the reason why these two companies are focusing on Montelukast is because, you know, three years ago in 2020, the FDA issued a new warning about the potential mental health side effects, including suicidal thoughts or actions in patients that are taking Montelukast. So the FDA said that they reviewed case reports observational and animal studies in the published literature, and after further evaluating the benefits and risks, the FDA decided to strengthen the warnings by adding a box warning to the prescribing information of Montelukast. Now, the FDA advises healthcare providers to first consider the benefits and risks of mental health side effects before prescribing Montelukast. The FDA also says that healthcare providers should be aware that some patients have reported neuropsychiatric events after discontinuing Montelukast use. Now, the FDA says that they investigated 82 cases of suicide that could be associated with Montelukast, and it was reported that many of these cases developed concomitant neuropsychiatric symptoms before the event. However, the FDA says that more than half of these cases did not have enough data for them to conclude that the adverse events of, of, um, that occurred were directly related to Montelukas. So the remaining cases indicated that other additional risk factors might have contributed to suicide. Another study conducted by the FDA compared the risk of depressive disorders, self-harm, and suicide in patients taking Montelukas for asthma, and they compared that with those patients that were taking inhaled corticosteroids. But 
no significant risks were found in the Montelukas group alone compared to the inhaled corticosteroids group. There was another big study that was published in JAMA Network Open, and this study was not conducted by the FDA, but it included over 150,000 patients that had either asthma or allergic rhinitis, and over 77,000 individuals were exposed to Montelukas. And so these patients were recruited to investigate the association between Montelukas and any incident neuropsychiatric diagnoses. Now, they, the study did observe increased odds of adverse neuropsychiatric outcomes like anxiety disorder, insomnia, and prescriptions for antidepressants, and these were observed with Montelukas treatment, but there is no direct biological evidence of Montelukas-associated neuropsychiatric outcomes. And so it was difficult to exclude other complicating factors that may have contributed to these neuropsychiatric diagnoses. So overall, you can see that it's still inconclusive whether Montelukas can cause neuropsychiatric events or suicide. And so um, that's why the FDA did step up their warning. And that's why Cerner and Vizia and Johnson Labs are collaborating to hopefully be able to use AI to better understand the link between Montelukast and mental health side effects. Because as you can see, trying to manually evaluate like tens of thousands of patient records and, and try to figure out if there is a, a, a very strong link between Montelukast and mental health side effects, it's very difficult to do that with um, conventional manual methods. So yeah, these companies are hoping that AI can help um, so just wondering, what do you guys think about this use of AI in determining the side effects of drugs on large real-world populations? Well, I think it's, you know, very important. Uh, and, and you're right, it would be really tough to kind of go through uh, symptoms and, and clinician notes and things like that and, and try and tease out whether or not there truly is a link between Singular and, and these mental health um, side effects. I, and I wonder, uh, you know, if they do determine that there is a link, you know, maybe they'll be able to develop some sort of um, tool that, that doctors can uh, use when they're trying to decide whether to um, prescribe Singular to a particular patient, maybe they can uh, administer like a, a questionnaire or something to uh, assess their like mental health going into treatment um, to be able to decide, you know, whether or not it would be appropriate. So I, I think it's definitely, um, it's definitely worthwhile. Um, and then I, I was just also thinking, and I wanted to get Sydney and, and Vera your thoughts on this. You know, if you were a patient that had asthma, your prescribed Singular, you started to sort of experience some, um, you know, suicidal thoughts or changes in your mental health. I, I wonder if you'd be able to, you know, identify like, oh, maybe it's this new drug I'm taking for my asthma. I feel like that's a really um, tough link for, for a patient to make. And so... Um, yeah, what what do you guys think about that? That was just sort of something that came up for me. Yeah, I was like when when I was hearing about this story, I think I sort of glazed over the fact that 
you know, it's not just medications that are meant for mental health that can mm-hmm. cause like mental health, um, you know, implications or, or, or side effects. So I would think it would be a difficult link to make because you think like, oh, I'm taking this for asthma. You don't really think that it has these side effects. But then, you know, I'm sort of replaying some commercials that I've seen in my mind for like, uh, like arthritis or other things that don't mm. really have to do with that, 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 that all like have these potential side effects. So I, yeah, like if I was taking this for asthma, I think, um, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't make that connection. And I feel like it would even be difficult for physicians to make that initial connection. I mean, I know they always like, they'll, they'll typically ask what medications are you on? And I feel like they'd have to really have like a good knowledge of like that medication and the side effects, um, you know, to, to be able to make that link. So yeah, kind of inconclusive for me. I'm not really sure if I personally would make that connection. What about you, Vera? Well, I do think it took a long time for the FDA even to make that connection because <laughs> yeah. you know, the drug was first approved for asthma in 1998. And then, you know, literally 22 years later, the FDA issued this, um, this boxed warning, you mm. know? So 22 yeah. years is a very long time. Like, I'm, I'm very surprised it took that long considering like that a lot of people have asthma and they take this medication probably on a long-term basis. So it's, you know, it has chronic use. So it's, it is surprising that it took over two decades though for the FDA to give this box warning, but it's probably because the results are just so like still ambiguous at this point. And I think that's why they want to use AI to Mm -hmm. um, help the interpretation of these results. But yeah, I, I would not think that an asthma medication would cause such side effects, but yeah, it does. It could. It's a really promising use of AI and and hopefully, you know, depending on how this project goes, they'll be able to apply the same, you know, tools for other drugs, maybe that it seems like there's been this tentative link, whether or not with, you know, mental health issues um, or or other health problems, maybe they'll be able to sort of substantiate or, um, yeah, even even show that there, you know, isn't a super solid link. Uh, between drugs and and some of these side effects. Because I know right now when a drug goes through the clinical trial process, you know, I believe even if like one patient or a very small subset of the patients experiences um, any sort of adverse events, I think that sort of has to be listed uh, as like a potential side effect. So like for instance with... um, with Singular, I'm seeing, in addition to the changes in behavior and mood, you know, fever, headache, sore throat, you know, maybe there was only a few patients that said, oh, I have a bit of a sore throat while they were taking this. Uh, and then that has to be, you know, included there. And, um, and so maybe in the future, AI will be able to kind of show after the fact, like, oh, you know what, I don't think these cases are actually linked to taking the drug or, you know, yeah, maybe they are, maybe we need to relook at the the safety um, and the risk benefit profile of a certain drug. Uh, the other thing I found interesting about this is that it's like an oral drug for, um, for asthma as opposed to a- an inhaled drug. And so I was thinking, okay, I didn't, I don't, I don't think I really realized um, that was a potential treatment. And I wonder 
why you would want to choose that over an inhaler. Like I'm, I'm assuming someone with an as with asthma would still have a rescue inhaler, you know, for when they're having an asthma attack. But um, yeah, I wonder what the benefit is over over having a a pill as opposed to something you need to inhale. Except for you know maybe just like the real ease of use on a regular basis. Yeah, I think um, one possible benefit could be that it may help, um, you know, prevent these asthma attacks on a long-term basis as opposed to just like treating them as they come. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why. But yeah, definitely like hundreds of thousands of people um, have used this drug or are on Montelukast. So, you know, it, it kind of makes sense that they would use AI for this because I have heard that AI performs even better the more samples it gets Mm -hmm. so the more real world patients you have i guess ai's ability to find a link between the drug and a side effect probably increase so i guess that's why they chose to do this project and that's the end of this episode of the x talks life science podcast if you like today's show don't forget to rate review and subscribe thanks everyone and see you next week Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.